Aloha, everyone. I'm Jason Schwartz, your host of the Maui Neutral Zone, MauiNeutralZone.com, and I have a great guest today. Howie Hawkins is the Green Party candidate that most people are seeing as, if you will, the main contender, the leader of the Green Party here in the United States in so many ways. Aloha, welcome to our show. Aloha, it's good to be here. Now, I say aloha, and I already know because I forgot to press the record button last time. This is take two. You have family out here in Hawaii, don't you? Yeah, I have four cousins. They were the children of one of the first Japanese war brides. And between them and their children, who largely married into Native Hawaiian and Filipino families, I have more relatives and in-laws over there than I can keep track of. So my annual trek to Hawaii was planned for May, and I was going to campaign and visit my people, and then we got the lockdown. So that's really the biggest disappointment of my whole campaign. Well, maybe there'll be a delay in you coming here, and I'm for that crowd because we just had a guest with COVID math, and it seems that if we're going to destroy our economy, which is happening either way, one way you can keep people home like New Zealand did and actually get out of the problem and pay people, when you do the math, even in the straight math, it comes out as the best choice. Um, You have a COVID campaign. It's not really a covert campaign. How are you getting your message out? By by calls like this, I bet, huh? Exactly. In fact... Instead of spending half a day dri- driving across the state or flying halfway across the country, I'm sitting at home talking to more people than I would have otherwise. So I've been talking to all the green parties. There are 51 different jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia. So that's a lot of talking to do. And then we have people who are refugees from Bernie Sanders' campaign coming to our campaign. And then there are other people that were unaffiliated, uh, but looking for a progressive alternative who are coming. So, you know, we have these Zoom calls. We have, you know, 50, 100 people on some of them. And uh, so there are all these little squares. And I'm seeing all kinds of people that I probably wouldn't have seen if I'd, you know, driven to a location. And then you've got to have people locally to organize the meeting. So in a way, it's worked out good for us at this stage of the campaign as we go for the Green Party nomination. You know, that thought about uh, that as we share and duplicate, you can get this message widely spread. That's probably one of the the biggest things we're seeing is people can duplicate and duplicate. And as you do, the numbers grow exponentially, exponentially, you know. Um, So you're running in 51 districts, right? 50 states and District of Columbia. Um, I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but it needs to be heard. Like, I live in a state, Hawaii, we're the tail that wags the dog. Our little two votes at the end, which always goes Democrat, and if it goes green, that's the miracle you and I had hoped for. This time, we don't even have a candidate in 2020, but we have spirit. And I wanted to get the Green Party here in Hawaii to be recognized across the country as part of, and in many ways, we hope, a leader to be an example of the green theory what what do you is at the heart of your green here we think self food security we think about environmental self-sustainability and environment i want to give you a notion of uh, where is the core of your platform and i mean i'm giving you a big broad thing and in some states you know they call them the states that go either way someone voting there might want to vote for you, but they if they vote for Biden, they might be, uh, you know, given the, the state to Trump. But you made me know about the whole Green Party. So I know your delivery is probably a great integrated story, and I want to give you a big platform now to really share with people who and what your campaign is about and who you are. Okay, well, who I am is I'm a retired Teamster. Before that, I was a construction worker. But I've really been an activist all my life. The work was to pay the bills. And I came up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1960s. So civil rights, then any Vietnam War, 
then the cutting edge of the ecology movement. I got caught up in all of that as a teenager and became convinced at that time that the Democrats and the Republicans really aren't for civil rights. They were for the war in Vietnam and they didn't know ecology from sociology. So I said, we need a new party. And so I supported peace and freedom in 1968, peace in Vietnam, freedom was a civil rights slogan that became part of the People's Party in 72, 76 with Dr. Benjamin Spock at the head of the ticket. 1980 was the Citizens Party, Barry Commoner, our foremost environmental scientist at the time. And then because I had helped organize the Clamshell Alliance, which did a big nuclear power plant occupation at Seabrook in New Hampshire, which kind of sparked the whole anti-nuclear movement at that time, that was 1977. In 1984, when they had the first National Green Party organizing meeting, uh, they invited the clamshell to send a couple people, and I was one of them. So my message to that meeting was, uh, if we're going to build a party, we got to build it from the bottom up. We're not going to build it out of a presidential campaign. And so that we need to go out and organize local groups, get involved in local politics, elect local people, and build from the bottom up. And we proceeded to do that for the next dozen years, so that by 1996, when Ralph Nader let us use his name, he didn't actively campaign, as a presidential candidate on a ballot, we got him on over 30 state ballots. And then in, 19, in 2000, he ran all out and we got him on over 40 ballots. And the Green Party became, everybody in the country knew about it if they were following politics. And I stayed active in the Green Party uh, since that first 1984 meeting. The Green Party in New York, I'm in Syracuse, New York, has run me three times for governor. And each time we got enough votes to get a ballot line for the next election cycle. In one year, I got 5%, and Governor Cuomo, who had been running as a social liberal but fiscal and economic conservative, suddenly decided he had to be a pragmatic progressive because he couldn't take our 200,000 votes and 5% for granted anymore. And then he adopted three of the demands that he had never supported before that we were making, a ban on fracking, a $15 minimum wage, and paid family leave. So that shows we can make a difference without actually winning the office. So then the question is, well, if you want to build this from the bottom up, why the hell are you running for president? And one of the things is about 40 of the states, uh, the percentage of vote that the Green or the presidential party, a presidential candidate gets for the Green Party determines whether that uh, state party will have a ballot line for the next election cycle. In most states, it's one, two or three percent. Uh, I don't remember what it is in Hawaii, actually, but New Mexico, it's half a percent. The highest is Alabama, it's 20%. That's very difficult. But so there are a lot of ballot lines we can win, and that enables our local candidates to run much more readily. You know, for example, where I'm in New York, you need 5% of your party enrollment in a district to run. So for a congressional district, that may be 50 or 100 signatures. If you have to run as an independent, it's 3,500 signatures. In Illinois, it's 15,000 signatures. In Georgia's 20,000 signatures. It's very difficult. So we want to get those ballot lines. That's one reason to run. And of course, the other is to inject our issues into the national debate and move the, the whole discussion. And at the core of my platform is a full-strength Green New Deal. I was the first candidate in the United States to run on a Green New Deal in 2010 when I ran for governor. And it was as much an economic recovery program coming out of the Great Recession as a climate action program, because the big public investments we wanted to make to get the economy going were in clean energy. And we're in a similar situation right now because with this coronavirus lockdown, we're in a depression. And we need a big public investment to get the economy going again because consumers are short of money, they're holding on, just paying for essentials. Investors and businesses are not gonna invest because it looks risky, because the consumer demand isn't there. So we got to run this through the public sector. So our Green New Deal, I have a budget on my website, AllieHawkins.us. It's a 10-year, $27.5 trillion program to rebuild all our productive systems, not just how we produce energy, but manufacturing, agriculture, transportation, and buildings to get to zero to negative carbon emissions in a decade by 2030 and to 100% clean energy. And so... A lot of that is through a public energy system, a public transportation system, and a big public sector in manufacturing. We got to do like we did during the World War II emergency. 
when the federal government took over a quarter of the manufacturing capacity in order to turn industry on a dime into what they called the arsenal of democracy to arm the allies against the fascist axis powers and beat them. And we need to do nothing less in this climate emergency. So that's central. And then also part of the Green New Deal for me and the Green Party from the beginning has been an economic bill of rights. And that's to make sure everybody, there's a real floor underneath everybody. So those rights include the right to a living wage job. If you can't get a job in the public sector, I mean the private sector, uh, you go to the employment office instead of the unemployment office and say, I want my job. And local communities will have designed social services and public works and they can plug you in. Should be an income above the poverty line built into the progressive tax structure. Affordable housing, comprehensive health care, Medicare for all, lifelong public education from pre-K and child care through post-secondary college, trade school, continuing adult education, and finally a secure retirement, which I propose to do by doubling Social Security benefits. That's a proposal that's been around a decade. We know how to pay for it. In the baby boom generation, wages have been stagnant. The cost of housing, health care, and college for the kids have gone up. So they raise their families, and they now they you don't have savings, and yeah. uh, a lot of them are living on Social Security, and it's not enough. So that's the economic bill of rights, and so that is uh, the second of uh, three life or death issues I'm emphasizing. You know, climate crisis, inequality, because working class life expectancies are declining now in this country. It's a life or death issue when you got to choose between rent and going to the doctor, and then. The last one is the uh, new nuclear arms race. The bullets and the atomic scientists has moved their doomsday clock the closest it's ever been to midnight. The last arms treaty between the United States and Russia expires next February 5th, and there's no negotiations going on. That concerns strategic arms. We're modernizing both the strategic arms and the tactical nukes. And the military doctrine of the tactical nukes is called escalate to de-escalate, which is crackpot. They think in your conventional war and you're losing, you use some tactical nukes and then you de-escalate. But once the nukes start flying, as Daniel Ellsberg showed in his last book, The Doomsday Machine, it's automated. All the nukes will go and that's the end of us. So those are the core issues that I've been campaigning on. And uh, hopefully with a lot of ballot lines and we're the only campaign in the country qualifying for federal matching funds, uh, we'll have the credibility that the major media is going to have to pay attention to what we're saying. So your message and what you're saying, um, I I heard in your conversation where you talk, Bernie Sanders folks were coming over, and I know you know Bernie for many years. In fact, uh, you shared that you had worked with him. But your message is not also something that's or should be foreign to all Americans. And people that are conservative, a lot of them don't like fracking. And a lot of them understand that you're a teamster yourself. You know what's going on out there. And, and uh, issues like black and white and all the things flying in the air these days. Um, you're uh, really preaching values. When I, I ran as a candidate some, I'm sharing, 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago as a green here in Hawaii. And we're talking the same stuff, except now green isn't a, a, a fringe. Now your, your ideas are mainstream. It's beautiful to see that you're standing for great ideas that all Americans can embrace. And when I asked about the, the voting thing, I know that you have a doubt, you should explain that to me and to everyone, that your power is to help the downline candidates because the consciousness of America needs to get more green. And you really are uh, standing strong. I used to have a there was a, a cartoon main when I was running for uh, office was a Kermit the Frog as Jason Schwartz sitting on a wall. It's not easy being green. After all these years, it's very easy being green because our ideas are right down the road. Regeneration of agriculture, ecological wisdom, social justice, things that, you know, I'm, I'm glad it has practical base, but uh, that's what I see. And, you mentioned all these different party names. What do you do with people that are in that feeling of, what do they do? They like what you say, but they're in a state where voting can be uh, 
your third party candidacy can uh, maybe tip things in a way they they wouldn't like. How do you deal with that kind of question? Well, in states like Hawaii, as you pointed out, it's not an issue. No. And it's better to vote for what you want and be heard and make the politicians come for you than to get lost in the sauce voting for Biden. If you're for Medicare for all, he's not. And you may be for it, but your vote isn't saying that. So don't waste your vote. But I take the same message to the so-called battleground states. Because for the Green Party, every state is a battleground. Take Pennsylvania and Ohio. Those states, the oil and gas industry is fracking the hell out of them. And the Democrats won't say a word. Even the elected officials that supported Bernie Sanders won't touch that issue. So the Greens find themselves fighting the Democrats as well as the Republicans on that. And there are Greens there and other running for other offices as well, as in other states too, yes? That's right. And they want to get a ballot line so they can keep doing that. Absolutely. And as a friend of mine in Mississippi named Kali Akuno said, you know, these people that tell us to stand down in the battleground states, they want us to leave them as sacrifice zones. You know, we're not going to do that. In fact, I wouldn't get the Green Party nomination if I said I was going to do that because the people in those states, you know, they wouldn't vote for me in their primaries and, and elect delegates for me. And, and yet we're also announcing to people that you can be independent in your voice. So if they have concern like that, they may not vote for you, but there are other Greens and that whole plan of what you're talking about is important and needs to be embraced by the people. That's my point, really. You know, we may have people that say, look, I really appreciate it. I love what you're saying. I can vote for all the other Greens, but then you have people vote their feelings. But what you stand for is so important. And it's likely you may not become president. I'm sure you've faced that. Even though you're running, you may not win. So your values and what you stand for, to me, is a very powerful message. And that's why I'm doing the kind of thing I'm doing here with you and, and some of these other guys, you know, because we are uh, very much a, a fabric to be able to integrate things that others wouldn't put together. But in the weave of what we are as Greens, by example, we offer so much to our country and our world. Your platform is a great example. Yeah, I'm, I'm not shaming or scolding people that in a close state, decide, you know, they want to get Trump out of there. I want Trump the hell out of there. Um, And I want to, you know, work with them going forward. I would still say their vote will count for more if they vote for us. Absolutely. But uh, if they don't, you know, they'll make up their own mind on that. And, you know, my role is to advance the green agenda and get as many votes as we can, get a ballot line for that state party and so forth. So you're very um, eloquent with, for the issues also, you, um, some of the other candidates talk about things but aren't as concrete. What, what's going on in the area of education? I know you talk about a Medicare for, for all stand, stand on health. What about education, uh, uh, homelessness and solutions in those areas? Well, in education, I think the federal government should take up a lot more of public school funding through progressive income and wealth taxes. And we should remove the reliance on the property tax, which can be regressive, and also the property is unequally distributed. So in, you know, wealthy districts, they have well-funded schools, and in poor districts, they're grossly under-resourced. So I think that's a place where the federal government just steps in with money, distributes it per capita to students, and then has some special funding for the uh, students where there are special needs and and particular uh, problems, you know, particularly in poor and minority communities. Uh, We need to stop privatizing public schools. This whole effort with high-stakes testing, which defines uh, poor people in schools that are poor, uh, they score low, and then they say they got poor schools, so we're going to privatize them into privately managed charter schools. And I know the charter industry says, no, we're public. We get paid by the public. Well, Lockheed Martin gets paid by the Pentagon. That doesn't mean it's a public enterprise. It's a private enterprise with shareholders making private profits. So you know, let's let's be clear about what we're talking about here. In those charter schools, there have been a lot of scams and fraud, and a lot of them have failed. On average, they don't do any better in the public schools. Whatever innovations they do do that are good, we can do in the public schools and have it under community control through elected school boards. So 
I think we got to stop the privatization, stop the high stakes testing, which is part of that, which narrows the curriculum down to just what they test and ignores very important things education should impart on students like creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, working in teams, all those things the high stakes tests don't even address. And then uh, we got to have uh, tuition free childcare and pre-K at the beginning and tuition free public education after high school. Uh, those are some of the things. And then we got a big segregation problem. We're more segregated now by both race and class than we were in 1980 and it's getting worse. And I think, you know, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, along with some legislation, could address that by basically changing school district lines because those district lines are now the new Jim Crow lines. And they, did, they divide off the property rich districts from the poor districts. Property rich districts tend to be white and upper income and the poor districts multicultural and low income. So there's a lot the federal government can do in, in the area of education. In terms of housing, in our Green New Deal, we have a, I'm trying to remember the number now, I think it's, uh, I think it's $2 trillion over the 10 year period to build, no, it's 2.5 trillion to build 25 million units of public housing. And this will be quality public housing for mixed income. We reserve 40% of the units so that the 10 million people who cannot afford uh, housing now, they're in, they're in they're low poverty and there's not affordable housing available to them, have housing available to them. But we're not doing it like we did before by segregating poor people of color in the worst part of town. We're building it all over. It's mixed income like they do in Europe. So you have professionals, you know, blue collar workers and low income people all living in the same development. Are we and, designing uh, things, bringing like a Detroit might do, integrating what was a rural activity into cities and greenifying? That's part of the deal, yes? That's part of the agricultural Green New Deal. Well, I'm saying integrate here in Hawaii, for example, food security is our issue. But if, if we can have ag and housing and living uh, integrated, we can do it as an example from the world here, and we are. But imagine to me an inner city that's now using like when hotel tourism goes down here, uh, Lieutenant Governor and I were talking about a hotel deal that they were talking about that has 4,000 rooms could handle a housing problem in a gigantic way in many kinds of things like that of repurposing. Uh, and now in, in town, in Detroit, right, where they talk about the rolling hills of Detroit, <laughs> yeah, you know, and gardens, that's what I'm thinking about. A re, you know, really a, a new level of integration that... Um, is that part of your Green New Deal proposals? I know you're Yeah, doing absolutely. Uh, one thing we want to do is distribute the money right down to communities and not have it in the hands of mayors and governors who have neglected poor communities of color in terms of economic development. And uh, this will be the resources Hawaii could use to do the kinds of things the Green Party there has talked about in terms of a green economy that is diverse with more local ownership and more self-reliance, particularly in areas of food, so that you're not importing so much at high cost. 90% of our food comes from off island. Unacceptable, yeah. 90%. With all these food shortages, when you go to the market here and you don't see any raw chicken, you go, well, that's because everybody on the mainland and everyone here is hoarding the last of the chicken. How, how's it going on the mainland? Are, are uh, stores, low on commodities yet? Uh, they were at the beginning of the lockdown. Uh, they seem to have cleaned it up for most, but not, for example, disinfectants, you know, hand swipes, those kind of disinfectants. Uh, there's been shortages of eggs. Um, there were shortages of nuts for a while, although they seem, at least the grocery store I go to, they seem to be caught up on that. So yeah. Hey. Yeah, I mean, I look at this COVID thing as a longer term problem. You know, it's like a spigot. You turn it on. Okay, people are out having activity. Oops, 
our numbers are going up too quickly. We got to change the curve. We close it. We close it. People get itchy. Uh, New Zealand did it. Close the country down. And giving. I mean, they're talking about with two thousand dollars a month or fifteen hundred dollars a month for a year. I mean, Canada doing things. You know, we don't hear about those things. I think they're. We should have a you know a garden on every patio and uh, really get people. I think the COVID. Uh, pandemic has exposed for everyone to see that the two governing parties in this country are presiding over a failed state. Yeah. You know, all the Pacific Rim countries, they have a test, trace, and isolate the infected program. And that's why they've been able to suppress the infections and the deaths to a fraction of what we got. We are 4% of the world's population, and we have nearly a third of the infections and deaths. Isn't that that is a total failure. And Trump is obviously incompetent and indifferent, but Biden is largely invisible. And when he does pop his head up, he's incoherent. I mean, why can't he say test, trace, and isolate, damn it, and, you know, get the Defense Production Act and get people mobilized so they can be the tracers? Yep. You know, every other country can do that. We can't even do that. And then I would add to that, you know, in the last two weeks, We've had this uprising of people against police brutality and racism. And I think it's exposed for a lot of people who didn't see it before that for centuries we've had a pandemic of racism. And now, you know, what's heartening to me is so many of these young people marching out there are white. It's multicultural. And I've been through the urban riots of the 60s, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and we haven't had this coming together of all the different ethnicities. And they're demanding justice. But, uh, you know, just today, you know, they're saying cut back on the uh, bloated police budgets. Stop having them do over-police for uh, low-level offenses, particularly in communities of color. And impose fines to raise money for the uh, municipal budget. And have officers wait to the end of their shift to do a little marijuana bus. So they automatically get a few hundred dollars of overtime. I mean, all this exploitation of communities by police budgets. And so people, the slogan is defund the police. What they really mean is scale it back to have the police just deal with the violent crimes and the uh, forcible property crimes like robbery. And that's only, that's less than 20% of what police do. And re, re, repurpose that other money in these bloated budgets to dealing with, say, homelessness not as a violation of vagrancy or disorderly conduct, but find them a damn home. If they're a drug addict, don't throw them in jail, get them drug treatment. If they're having a mental health issue, don't send somebody with a gun, send some mental health specialists. That's what people are talking about, but Joe Biden just said today, he's against quote unquote defunding the police, and in fact wants to put 300 million more federal dollars into local police departments. I mean, I tweeted back at him, that he should get out of his basement, go to the demonstrations, and get educated. So, you know, Trump wants to suppress him with military force, and even the generals are saying, you know, he's a threat to the Constitution and our democracy. But Biden's out of touch. So I, I think in both those cases, you know, this failed state with respect to the coronavirus and to this long legacy of racism is an opportunity for the Green Party to step up and point to some real solutions and, and help people that are already out in the streets get some results. Well, you make really good points. Um, and you also, I know you have a vice presidential candidate by choice. Uh, tell us a little about her. Would you be so kind? Yeah, Angela Walker is somebody I met in 2014. She was a, uh, a municipal bus driver with the you know regional transit authority in Milwaukee. And then the Wisconsin uprising happened. And that's where Governor Walker attacked the teachers and the other public employee unions, although they exempted police, firefighters, and transit workers. But she said, I'm a transit worker. I, can, I care about my fellow workers and organized her local union to go up to Madison and support those big demonstrations. And because of that, the president of the union said, I'm going to make you the legislative director, which she became. And that was the first half of 2011. And then the Occupy movement broke out in the fall and she got her union involved in that. 
And being an African-American woman, she got involved in Occupy the Hood to try to bring the black community into that movement. And because of that kind of act activism, which goes back to her high school years, she's been a labor and racial justice activist her whole life. Um, people in Milwaukee said, you should run against Sheriff David Clark. Y'all seen him. He's been on Fox News. He's a black guy with a cowboy hat. And his slogan was, don't call 911, get a gun. And, you know, her answer was, no, fight uh, crime by fighting poverty. And uh, so she took him on as an independent socialist, and she got 20% of the vote. And I met her because I was running for governor of New York that year. And we were on a panel together in Chicago. And then we were on another panel the next year. And I just found her to be somebody who is very clear when she speaks, and she speaks with a, a passion, a conviction that people can really feel. So, you know, we stayed in touch, and, and uh, she moved down to uh, South Carolina, where she's now a truck driver, and uh, might be pouring asphalt right now as we speak, because that's what she's, she, her, the company she works for is doing right now uh, on, on road work. And uh, so as I thought about who might be my vice presidential candidate, I thought she kept coming to the top of the list. She's somebody that I can work with as a team because we have good rapport. She knows the issues. She really is a great messenger. And I was just pleased that she said yes. And so she's my running mate. Um, as I'm thinking about all this candidacy, uh, we often talk about uh, thinking globally, but acting locally. I'm really glad that you have green candidates in many states that are, how many states do we have that are green candidates? I don't have a count. Um, in fact, Hawaii is the only one I know where there are no green candidates. Right. Except maybe North and South Dakota and New Hampshire, where we don't have organized green parties. So, right. Out here, we're seven islands. <laughs> seven islands has been a hard thing to coordinate. But, um, yeah. We definitely have green hearts and we're gonna be the green example as Dream Maui. We dream that we can be an example to the whole world and this is a year we've got to prove it. We're out here 3,000 miles. We got a 3,000 mile moat. So if we don't get it together, but we can. And um, that's why I talk about the hills of Detroit being farms. We wanna you know, see what can be done and, and showcase it to the world. Uh, you know, we have um, a green heart out here. Whenever you can get out here, we'd love to have you and have you be part of what we're doing here. Because uh, I keep wondering, you know, I, whether I should have started running. But we have a lot of candidates who aren't green by party yet, but are green by heart. We've had a real uprising of consciousness here in, in a very green way. So. Um, I'm very happy to say that about my island. I know that what you speak is like a, what do we say, music to my ears, and that's something I'm very comfortable with. Um, if I had you talking to our um, audience in a, you know, what do we want to call it, a couple of minute speech, what would you want to tell them that you want to be sure they get about your candidacy and as you, as we're moving forward? Well, I would say in November, you're going to have a choice between Donald Trump, who, as I said, is incompetent and indifferent to the people's needs, and Joe Biden. And when you think of Joe Biden, what has he ever fought for that's for the people? He's been a machine politician. You really can't associate him with anything except maybe all the criminal justice legislation that contributed to our country having the largest prison system in the history of the world. And uh, now he wants to put more money into the police. I think of that the, the Democrats didn't do their hard work of finding bright, new, aggressive young candidates. We They play with Joe Biden for the last 25 years in, in the media as a big ping pong ball. A guy keeps dropping the ball, saying the wrong things, right? And now they're running him for president as better than Trump. It's like... Close our eyes to what we've seen. Right well, it's here. a miserable wow. choice. And, you know, yeah. what I would say to people in, you know, the elevator speech for a minute or two is make your damn vote count. You know, are you for Medicare for all? Are you for a full strength Green New Deal? 
You think there's some economic rights and our economic bill of rights everybody should have. You think college should be available to everybody that, you know, is willing and able to put in the work. And if you're for those things, vote for them. Make yourself heard. Don't get lost in the sauce of the Democratic Party where you disappear as a distinct voice. And, and your, I, vote, your vote is your voice in the election. And, you know, it's one time when you get to say what you're for and it's tallied up. So let's get a big tally for the things we're for. Do you get a lot of young people at your Zoom calls? To me, that's where our power is in waking up the young to the power of their vote. And, yes. Because uh, yeah, out here in Hawaii, that's an issue. You know, with the young and overall, we don't get the kind of voters and voter turnout. What do you do? How are you doing in that area? Well, we're getting the young activists. And what I'm telling them, like I tell everybody, is you just can't get the people that aren't involved with us with clever Facebook posts or tweets. You got to go out and talk to people and not go out and preach like we got the answer. Here's the leaflet. Go out and listen and build relationships and friendships and trust and then build Green Party organization in those communities so that when people have issues, they know they, they know us. They know who we are. They can trust us. They know we can get results. And, you know, what keeps people from participating is not so much they're apathetic or uninterested. They feel disempowered and alienated. And if we can show them we can win little victories, you know, locally, that gives people a sense of their power. And we can build on that and build up, you know, to state and national level. I always wonder these Zoom calls if people realize that in front of our eyes we're seeing these things exploding into numbers. It's how to motivate all those people to keep putting it out. This media, the time we have, is giving us both an opportunity. It's an opportunity and a curse, right? Uh, I always think that the young people today are missing some direction because there's just so much to see. And yet that so much to see gives them so much to see. But hopefully this kind of thing and the, the movement of what you're doing in the Green Party um, will really stick to the ribs and get people to take that action. That's six feet apart at the moment, but take that action and get get registered and get voting. Uh, I thank you for being here. I um, I somehow feel that um, I want to wake everybody up to the fact that we need to come together. You know, there's such a feeling of divided in this country. I'm hoping that this. You know, this COVID thing, I talk about a participation marketplace and disruptive technology financially, and, and I have other things, but all that this time means to me is maybe we can get aligned. And that's why this is the Maui neutral zone, because whether you're Democrat, Green, Blue, White, Republican, Trump, we can talk here and see what we can agree on. You speak such great wisdom and so much that people of our country need to hear and embrace when they go to the ballot box, but also uh, as Americans. You're, um, I really appreciate, you know, you're talking about um, Angela being a truck driver and you being a teamster up in New York, and you really are the fabric of our country, speaking good sense, not as a fringe, but as a really contributor to be the the lifeblood and, and the melting pot of the ideas. To me, that's what I, I appreciate mostly. I wish that- yeah, in, in my experience, when you get down to a concrete problem in a local community, and you know, this technology is great, but there's, there's something about face-to-face, -face, even if we're six feet apart with masks on these days, you just get a better sense. I mean, if, if you're gonna trust somebody it's hard to do it just through this format. So we, we've got to find a way to get out there safely. Um, but when you get down to local problems, you know, and solving a local problem, the labels go away because for most people, 
the problem, the answer is pretty clear. And usually the problem why we can't get it is special interests. You know, the big problem of American politics is that public opinion that has majority support doesn't translate into public policy. But at the local level, we have a lot more power because the special interests, it's easy to buy, you know, 535 senators and Congress people and, you know, 100 or whatever it is in the state legislature. It's hard to buy out the grassroots. It's too big. And that's where we can come together with real solutions to hell with the special interests. And in my experience, like, for example, you know, we wanted to get a public power utility in my city of Syracuse because the village next door had a public power utility. And this is an old factory area. We're in the Rust Belt. And all the factories are gone except in that village because their electric rates are one quarter what they are in the rest of the area. So it made a lot of sense. And I campaigned for mayor on that. And I had people from the conservative party, not just the Republican party, as well as Democrats and Greens saying, yeah, we need this. And out of the campaign came a, what do we call it? Campaign for public power. And uh, we actually got the, the city legislature, the city council to vote for a feasibility study. Now, unfortunately, the Democratic mayor uh, told the vendor that, we, that was hired, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to give a, a job to Siemens to build a biofuels plant to only fund government buildings and school buildings. So the council pulled the, uh, pulled the funding and nothing happened. But the point is, the people came together. We knew what we wanted. And we just but, had to be better organized to beat the special interests. But and that that's a crazy example. So it ended up that you didn't get what you want. You guys are still paying higher rates, but the city took care of their own needs. No, the, the Siemens plant was never built. Oh, but nothing, the, happened. nothing happened for the people. So um, it's the utility is called National Grid, but the people call it National Greed. Oh, is there any way to decentralize where everyone does? Like in Hawaii, we have huge numbers of people going to self-sustainable systems for their homes in their little communities. That yeah, there's, that's, there's some of that happening in their, you know, uh, vendors that uh, let you buy renewable energy for a little premium and they aggregate people. But um, not a big campaign like, yeah, is that part of your Green Deal, I'd imagine, right? No, we want, we want public power because we got to have a smart grid to accommodate all this distributed renewable energy. Uh, we've got to, you know, mothball the gas and coal plants and nuclear plants. We sure and do. The existing investor-owned utility is going to run those until they're worn out. And we don't have time for that because we've got to make a rapid transition to avoid the worst of climate change. So Decisions are made you know, local, people, locally, huh? It's good that people are doing, you know, what they can but we need systemic change and, uh, you know, not leave these big utilities as well as the big companies like the Koch brothers and Exxon and uh, Texaco to, uh, or Chevron now to uh, determine our energy future. Yeah, well, um, I know you're out there fighting a good fight. I hope that uh, some of it sticks to the ribs and that we get greens you, but, and others, so much across the country into positions where these policies and directions can take form into positive action to create what we're talking about. I really appreciate it. Um, is that about it? Do you, I know that you're going to want to come back as the campaign goes on. If you become the candidate after the primary, when is the primary? We still got a little time. You're you're going to be a, need to take a break soon from all the calls, right? And do something else. <laughs> no breaks till November 3rd. And then it's probably a good night's sleep and then a couple of them. And then, you know, we figure out what to do with what we got, how to keep organizing. It won't stop. Um, the primaries are mostly done. I've won 23 out of 25 primaries. Uh, and the ones that where they're voting now, I think I'll get enough delegates to clinch the nomination I see. Um, we're that close so um but we're we got to follow through it isn't over till it's over so but it's coming close and then we'll be uh 
uh, we'll have the national nominating convention on July 11th. And uh, then we're into the general election campaign. Have you been having any kind of communications at all with the other campaigns, by example, the Biden group or even the Trump group or other party candidates for president? No, just salvos by their surrogates in, you know, publications like the New Yorker and the Nation and the LA Progressive, you know, saying I should drop out because I'm going to spoil the election. And I say right back at him, no, you're spoiling the damn election because we've been giving you the proven nonpartisan solution to the spoiler problem. And that is to get rid of the Electoral College and have a ranked choice national popular vote for president. And uh, Bill McKibben said in the New Yorker, I should drop out to support ranked choice voting. Well, if I'm not in the race, it isn't even going to be raised. I'm not even sure Biden knows what it is. I'm sure Trump has no idea what it is. So, you know, they attack me and I say, thank you. That gives me an opportunity to get on the platform and, and say my side of the story. So, um, but directly from the Biden campaign, no. And I don't think, uh, I don't expect that because to do that would be to elevate us. And he doesn't want to elevate us because he'd be taking us seriously. Um, but if he does, you know, I'm ready to talk. I'll say steal my platform. Go for, you know, a, na a national popular vote with ranked choice voting. Take it, you know, and convince people you really mean it. That's what I was doing here was, was asking them to steal my platform. That was exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Well, I hope that it goes uh, well. And I know that we're going to invite you back here in a couple of months, if you, if you will, to our show and to our people here. And I hope that we can see your feet here. Although the other side, I'm very concerned about the re-spreading of this thing because of people not taking it real enough. Whatever's happening, you know, people well, are done. My cousins tell me if I get there, I got to quarantine for 10 days before I can go out. 14. 14, okay. Yeah, boy, I don't know if I have time for that with the campaign. I've... And they take it they take it seriously around here. I mean, they've been... They've been arresting people and sending them back on their way or putting them in jail because you know, here we are a fairly low count, but our count has started to go up here in the last few days. So we're very aware of the math of it all. And that's why I brought that other thing up because it may not be the most fun to close everything down except essentials, but it may be important for us. So it's, it's a tough discovery of what's going to be the answer. But like you said, with 4% of the population, 25% of the problem and what's going on. So we've got some rough stuff going on here. Yeah. And you said earlier, it's going to be around. I mean, I think people have to understand that uh, the fastest vaccination we ever created was for months. It took four years. They've been trying to create a vaccine for HIV for 40 years. I don't believe there have been any vaccinations for the coronavirus family, which includes the common cold, SARS, MERS, and now this uh, novel coronavirus, COVID-19. So, and we don't have treatments. So we're going to be probably for a number of years having a social distance and what we really need, and, and you know, it's so ang aggravating that the federal government hasn't organized a test, trace, and uh, isolate program. And if we don't do that, you know, these infections are spreading as they are around the country. You know, Texas, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, California's having a big outbreak now. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you said they might open and close. I don't think so. I think they're opening up and good luck. And we don't have a personal protection equipment, but, uh, you know, business interests, I think, have dominated that decision. Trump led the way, but the Democratic governors are going along. So well, Hawaii has got, like, we like to think people are going to be leaving because there are no jobs, but a lot of people want to come here because there's no virus. If we open up to tourism, we could be the, really, we have no hospital facility to be able to handle the kind of thing that can happen. So it's a very, very touchy subject around here, you know? Really yeah. touchy. <laughs> so, but 
we hope to see you. Well, I'm hoping that we can be handling it, but I don't want to be like Tinkerbell and jump out there and thinking I got it all handled. Um, um, I didn't take it seriously until I looked at the math to really see that uh, we're not going to win at this anyway unless we change how we treat each other and what we do on a very grassroots level. So the Green Party and the Green Ideas and all you're doing, I very much appreciate. And thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Howie Hawkins. HowieHawkins.us, is that the right? The way that's to right. That's my website. And that's where there's more information. People can sign up to uh, get bulletins from the campaign, volunteer, donate. Everything's there. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on. Good. And if uh, that 14-day quarantine, I'm probably not going to get there during the campaign. But maybe the way I'll relax is after the campaign, you know, go visit my cousins and just make it a long trip. Or maybe you can come here and get quarantined with your cousins, do your calls, but do them from, you know, um, you could do them from Maui or from Oahu, where all the family may be. That would be a good way to do it, I think. I mean, give it some thought. Because 14 days in a closed environment with your family, you know, anyway, just a thought. Because people that come here really like it. So that's why you're going to hear about me and Participation Marketplace. We are, I have ways that I see all 45 million people uh, changing the way we look at our economy and the integration of delivery of of uh, money and everything. So I can hardly wait to, you know, have more people popping up like yourself through action to make this dream because it takes people doing it. Like you said, if you're out in the community and people already know who you are because you're in action doing positive things, you're not like the Green Party conniving to be in groups. You are those groups. You are the people on the front lines and needs to need to recognize how that you can lead and cooperate. So thank you again. Thank you very much. I know what it takes to run. It's a, it's a huge thing. And for President of the United States, beyond my, my understanding. Thank you so very much, very much, Howie. Yeah, well, thank you for having me and we'll do it again. We will. Thank all of you for joining us here at the MauiNeutralZone.com. You'll find all of our shows and this, and you can listen to it again. All these live on YouTube. Blessings to all of you. Howie, thank you. And aloha, everyone. Aloha. Aloha.